um, the opportunity is there if you keep costs low in an insurance-based practice to still make really, really good money. Welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. Here we talk about pain, rehab, performance, and education. If you have questions about the nuance that we dive into, please reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about it. Apart from that, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, and we hope everyone stays safe and is staying healthy. All right, guys, we are back with another podcast in the new year, 2021. Um, What's up, John? How's it going? Um, It's going well. I'm happy that we're in 2021 and ready for... uh to see what this year brings compared to 2020. Yeah, I feel like I'm fairly, I'm actually fairly optimistic that the end of this year, well, for context and for those of you out there, John and I, and actually all of Precision has gotten the vaccine now for COVID-19. Um, so I'm fairly hopeful that that's gonna be a regular common thing in the next several months and that enough people are gonna get it that the end of 2021 will be yeah. more normal. but. Um, so we're going to kind of like talk a little bit today about uh, precision as a business. This is actually technically episode 100, um, and we're going to do you know somewhat of an informal series with guests down the line, uh, talking about you know different business models in PT and in rehab, sports performance, um, and how people try to kind of monetize and provide value and, and get a return for their value that they provide. Um, but as in episode 100, it makes sense to maybe talk a little bit about precision and your thought process behind the business and you know behind how you found things that work, things that don't work over the last, that's been seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll just kind of take it from there. Yeah, perfect, let's do it. Um, so, you know, we've talked before in private about, you know, how Precision started and obviously early on it was uh, part of a franchise, a training room, um, and, you know, you kind of branched off and did your own thing. When I was still a student and just kind of looking at the business from the outside, I actually thought that Precision originally was, I don't know why I made the assumption that it was cash-based. Um Maybe it was just because I saw that you guys offered some programming and offered things that were, you know, had prices attached to them. Um, So I assumed that you didn't take insurance. But then obviously, as I got to know more, I was like, oh, no, they actually are a little bit more like a traditional model than I thought. Um, Have you ever thought of doing the cash based thing? Uh, Fleetingly, I think. And and I have done some cash on the side in in years past. Um, I don't know. I think cash... I think you can still provide it, it all. Um, I don't know the way the way that I've kind of evolved my thought process is um, you can still give good quality care, um, still make money as an insurance based practice, may, still um, provide the good quality to uh, insurance gives you access to more people pretty much right I think I mean you could make the argument that cash there's there's no um, you know you're not in contract with any insurance-based companies contracts don't stifle you at all but usually cash-based clinicians have a higher price 
and they argue that they can see less patients, provide more value because you're one-on-one care. Um, but I think you can do the same thing, and this might be state dependent. I think you can do the same thing with insurance-based practice. Um, you know, it, it, maybe it depends on state because in your state they might reimburse seventy dollars versus, or a certain insurance company might reimburse seventy dollars versus one state might reimburse a hundred dollars. So that obviously comes into play a little bit. Um, but I also think that. Um, the opportunity is there if you keep costs low in an insurance-based practice to still make really, really good money. Maybe you see a little bit more volume. But I also, as, as my thought process has evolved, I don't think why does good quality care have to be con- – like you can still provide good quality care by seeing two people in an hour. Like, yeah. I don't think it has to be one person one-on-one for an hour to really dial in form and technique and – what you want them to feel here or there. Like, I think you can do that with two people in the clinic at a time. And maybe yeah. it's just how you structure your practice. Um, whereas in the past, we've done like on the half hour. So you do whatever manual work or really close technique we're in, in that half hour before people come in. But we've recently switched to two patients on an hour. And I, I don't think our quality care has gotten worse. And then we've all talked that we feel like it has gotten maybe better in our ability to... Um, really dial in our our, tre- our treatment philosophies and our practice and our, our clinic flow. But I, I think, um, and you see this with small group, the, the, um, the trend towards small group training in gyms too with the individualized programming. I think you can still provide great value in an insurance-based practice and possibly make more money. Yes, you're seeing more volume, but why does care have to be compromised if you have two people in the clinic versus one? Yeah, and I... I- I agree 100% because there are, I feel like there was a wave of time, you know, when cash based was becoming more well known as a, an alternative option um, on social media. And a lot of people were kind of glorifying the ability to see people one on one for an hour. And it's like, you know, this is radically better care than an insurance based model because you're one on one for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt like I pushed back against that a little bit because, you know, outside of maybe the evaluation where you need to have a conversation and you need to be one-on-one to really get to know the person, once we get down to just kind of going through a treatment session and, um, you know, reevaluating as you go along, but you've already gotten to know the person considerably, I felt like two people on the hour is perfectly manageable and if not maybe a little bit better particularly with our our population you know we don't have as much um chronic pain maybe as many psychosocial factors that would you know lend itself to maybe needing to be a little bit more private Mm -hmm. you know have deeper conversations that maybe last a little bit longer but when we have you know one person rehabbing an acl versus two people rehabbing an acl you know, we can address both of those people's kind of programming and technique in the session. And if anything, it builds a little bit more like clinic culture, mm-hmm. I feel, when you don't have, you know, the one-on-one interaction. And now you have patients interacting with each other, getting to know each other because they schedule same similar times during the week, similar days, and they get to know each other and they build kind of a, a community mm-hmm. even in the gym. And I feel like that provides value in itself 
that you know you don't get with a one-on-one system mm-hmm. um, and the reality is like I just don't know if you really need to be watching the person 100% of the time during their session I think if you're doing a good job educating them particularly early on like the patient should probably become a little bit more autonomous as things go mm-hmm. and you probably don't need to cue them on every exercise every rep in every set and that's where I think that that cash-based one-on-one for an hour sell doesn't really get it get it to me like i don't, I don't completely understand that uh, the value is that much higher in that circumstance um but I, I still hear you know in the pt business world like people will still make the argument that like you know two on the hour might not be enough and then reimbursement goes down and now you have to see two and a half and now reimbursement goes down you have to see three and i think that a lot of that is just built up by folks who are you know creating an enemy to then say oh well cash based is the solution to this horrific problem maybe they're blowing the horrific problem out of proportion a little bit mm-hmm. but how what have has been your experience over the last seven years or, or you know even before you kind of took this on as your own but um, with reimbursement maybe from insurance going down and that leading to having to see more people has that been your experience over the last several years yeah I mean and that's with the the recent Medicare cuts I, we I haven't stayed on top of it as much as I probably should because we don't see a ton of Medicare but that's always the concern right and and if you your cash base you can set your price to as high I've heard as high as two hundred and seventy five dollars an hour and you don't have to worry about Insur- the being at the whim of an insurance company contract where they could come to you tomorrow and say, we're only reimbursing you this now, right? So, I mean, that's a positive, but obviously charging two seventy five an hour greatly limits the type of person that you're going to bring into your practice. And then in, um, from what I've seen, then you just become a little bit more of a salesperson to prove to them why your value is that, right? Yeah. And that's just a decision that you make as, as a company. Um but I also think, you know, for me, I want to be able to provide high quality care to the um, and have, make it available to as many people as I can. If it, insurance companies start to dictate that we're getting paid less than a certain amount, then we have these cash options that we can hopefully make up for that with. Um, and that goes into like you and me, Max, have talked about it's hard to pay a therapist more without them seeing more value, volume because unfortunately insurance companies pay the same regardless if you're a year out experience or 20 years out experience right, right? Um, but I can provide you know I can hopefully build volume help you get paid more but then provide other cash services that you take a percentage of to help you know improve your salary so I, I think that's where insurance-based practices can be a little more progressive and say we can be a little bit of a hybrid where we can provide value um, to a lot of people not seeing a ton of volume, but then we can have these ancillary services, whether it's through continued programming after or creating a membership site or, you know, even we're going so far as um, having a mentorship for, for students coming up. Like there's other ways to monetize the business besides just being stuck in a silo of, my, you know, my salary is going to be dictated by the insurance company's whims of if they want to, you know, decrease reimbursement or whatever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, other 
kind of bigger corporate companies have tried to monetize the profession in other ways, but the extent to like a Novacare or uh, a company like that's trying to monetize is like, hey, maybe we'll sell TheraBand in the lobby and make money that way. And, you know, it's been obviously pretty lackluster and, and that do, does not drive a ton of passive income. Um, but like you said, for us, you know, offering cash-based services that, you know, maybe fall outside of the scope of PT specifically, like getting a little bit more towards, you know, transitioning from PT and going towards programming from a remote standpoint or from an education standpoint and offering, you know, things that help people dive into maybe learning a little bit more about the niche that you're in. Um, so for us, it's obviously sports performance and um, kind of performance-based rehab. But for anyone else, even in, a, in an outpatient, like I have tons of friends who are in you know, women's health or pelvic health and offering other types of educational content for that for patients or for other clinicians is another way to build maybe a more passive source of income or at least a supplementary source of income that's you set the prices for and you dictate it's not dictated by an insurance company um i think those are are great options seem to be great options obviously then you're limited and you you have to get people to pay for those things but um you know i think the other problem is you look at a cash-based practice and like you said, you have to pay or you have to set your prices fairly high. And so you do limit yourself to, and maybe there is you know, somewhat of a, an ethical or a moral dilemma of limiting yourself only to those who can afford you know, $275 per session. Um, whereas you know, you're kind of not offering help to those who maybe need it but can't afford that extent of their you know, payments. And that's something that I think about when I consider cash-based services where I'm like, man, like who am I going to see if I charge $290? I need to obviously, people need to be able to pay for your service, but sometimes I look at the prices that cash-based clinicians are setting. I'm like, that's great if you're doing well for yourself, but at the same time, like you only are available to those who are also doing well for themselves. Yeah, I mean, you could. There's there's arguments on either side. You could make the argument it's all perceived value. Like, you know, someone that maybe can't afford it, they they decide that they want to afford it because they want to make this change. Um, yeah. You know, but I I think you have to also look at the cash based guys. Usually, they're a little more entrepreneurial, and then they they're either teaching courses on the side or they're creating their mentorship to teach other people to do cash based stuff and. They're making money in other ways as well, and I, I definitely know there's clinicians that have a multi-clinician practice, and you know that it's cash-based, and they're, you know, that's great, that's doing really well. Um, but I also know there's a lot of clinicians that are out doing supplementary things because they're not getting enough patients in the door as cash-based. You know, they might see ten a week, but then they're teaching a course on the weekend, or they're doing this mentorship to try to get people in. So. Um, you know why can't you be an insurance-based practice, but then also teach the courses and the, um, you know, have the supplementary income with the mentorships and that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, and I, I hear the criticism obviously all the time of insurance companies dictating 
how you practice and cash-based clinicians saying, well, I want to practice the way that I want to practice and have, you know, complete autonomy, no one looking over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. But I honestly think that you might even have less autonomy in a cash-based practice because then you're, you're really shackled to making decisions about the patient's care, maybe a little bit more based on trying to keep them in the door or keep them as a referral source or get you know, kind of patient satisfaction really high, and that becomes your biggest metric. Whereas an insurance-based company or an insurance-based practice, you know, maybe you're more okay with someone receiving the care that they need and not the care that they want because the risk of them walking away from that because they didn't get what they wanted is not as harmful to your business. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But Max, what you just described almost sounds like us right like so our patient satisfaction is pretty high we still see probably a majority of our patients one-on-one except for the busy times right maybe some mornings we double up and some the afternoon after school hours were doubled up right but we have over a hundred review like five-star reviews on google we um, provide good quality care our average plan of care is like six visits right so from the outside, it could seem like we're cash-based, but we, we're not, right? Right. Um, so I, th- I think you can – I mean, I get it comes down to how much profit do you – like are you going to put money over – and we all still do pretty fairly well, and I think salaries are still competitive, right? Right. Um, you know, um, so I think it just depends what you want as a business owner and – I think you can provide both, and with both cash-based and insurance-based practice-based practices, it depends. Like, keep your costs low. That's going to dictate the um, the profit that you make, and then both. There's no reason both can't provide outside ancillary cash-based services in a hybrid model. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, we it it does happen fairly frequently where either someone will call or someone will come in you know, for their evaluation and they aren't necessarily the right fit for the clinic in terms of us being a very sports oriented clinic or at least a, a musculoskeletal or orthopedic based clinic. Um, you know, maybe someone has a neurologic condition or they have something that we feel like is outside of our you know, specific specialty. And it does occur that we kind of refer them maybe to someone who is better equipped to handle that diagnosis or that specific person. Um, And, you know, maybe this is a kind of a funny way of looking at it, but because we don't profit a tremendous amount from any individual patient, Mm -hmm. we're okay with doing that. And that's what's best for the person or for the patient. But if that in a cash-based model, that one person coming to your door and saying, hey, can you treat me? That person is going to, for you, bring in, you know, you're charging $300 a session and you're going to see them once a week for four weeks. You know, you're looking at $1,200 for your business. You may, that's a conflict of interest almost. You know, you may be very tempted to take on patients who would otherwise be better served by other people. Mm -hmm. And that's now starting to change the way that you practice and the decisions that you make that maybe aren't 100% in the patient's best interest, 
Whereas that's the criticism that folks who are in the cash-based practice realm give about an insurance-based model. We're like, well, insurance is dictating the way you practice. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, doesn't the the need for money in your business from a cash standpoint dictate the way you practice? And most of them will probably say like, no, I do what's best for the patient. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but you could make that argument with insurance-based practice too because costs do go up because you have to have a billing company. You have to have... You know, like we have a front desk manager, like if depending on the size of your cash-based practice, like those are two costs that you might not take on, right? Yeah. So you could make that same argument where, you know, being having to pay those bills dictates how you bring people in the door or you might prescribe an extra set. You might go to two or three sessions a week, whereas cash, you feel like you can give more personal care and they only need one session a week, right? Yeah. I mean, Um, but I guess I just think that every individual patient is maybe less meaningful because a cash-based practice, you might only see, you know, 10 visits a week, mm -hmm. right? But so every individual patient is 10% of your business. Right. Right. Whereas that's not the case for us. Mm-hmm. So if an individual patient we feel like is better served somewhere else, you know, we'll give up one one hundredth of our business. Yeah. A cash provider might feel a little uncomfortable giving up 10 percent of their business. Right. So yeah. maybe in that circumstance, it, it, it has a little bit more impactful influence on their decision making, even though obviously, you know, an insurance provider has bills to pay, too, and decisions are made to some extent based on that as well. But um, yeah, I think it's just a lot of the arguments that I see cash-based practices make about the insurance system, I'm not wholly convinced that they are exempt from that just because they take cash. I think they face a lot of the similar problems. Maybe they just look a little bit different in terms of how they face it. Yeah, like I, like, so if you live in a state that again, like, there's insurance companies that pay $70 a visit. You might as well be a personal trainer, right? right. Um, but if you double that up and if you see two patients an hour and you see 140, all right, that's a little bit more manageable if you're running a business. Um, but if, you know, if you're in that state and you can go cash and charge, you know, I I think it just, some of that is, I, I'm going back to the state dependent thing, but if you're in a state that charges a hundred bucks and uh, you know, the insurance company gives you a hundred dollars an hour and you see two patients, 200, that's not so bad. Why would you go cash? You know, I, I, going back to, I don't think me charging one patient an hour, um, $200 versus two patients. I don't think quality of care goes down there. Right. Um, you know, maybe there's a little more paperwork with notes or evals or whatever, and you're trying to get rid of that because that's what every therapist on most therapists that's number one problem with the profession is all the paperwork right yeah um i don't know i think the point is like cash isn't this this holy grail of where i want to get to or it shouldn't be you know i just don't believe that you're necessarily giving better quality care i don't believe that it's the end all be all i think it looks really good on paper but there's a lot of people that get into it and they're like, yeah, I'm going to enter, I'm going to play the insurance game a little bit. Right. Right. Um, but there's, I, I think it's a great option too for clinicians that need to pay student loans off or something like do cash on the side. And then if you can grow that a little bit to something you're comfortable with sustaining full time, then do that. Um, but I just, I don't think it's, 
again, the holy grail that everybody champions it to be. Because when you really dig down deep and talk to these people that say they're doing really, really well, like they're just like they have the same problems as everybody else. They're still doing things on the side to try to make money and make ends meet. Yes, there are the people that have great practices that have multiple clinicians getting cash. But I think for the most part, everybody's dealing with the same issues when you really break it down and, and talk to them you know, in, in a closed door setting versus just seeing what they're putting on social media. Yeah. And the, the reality is like this podcast may very well not age well because the insurance system and the, the kind of political components of that can change very rapidly or if not rapidly, you know, over the course of a, a decade or two can look radically different. And so, you know, I'm Canadian by birth and I lived in Canada until I was uh, almost a teenager. And obviously the healthcare system there is radically different and that will impact the structure of everything considerably. Where the, the United States healthcare system goes in terms of its direction, who knows what's gonna happen there. But that could you know, very much affect what we would say on this exact same topic in five or 10 years. So who knows, but at this point in time, I, I feel like you know, that's, a, that's a pretty fair assessment in terms of the pros and cons of cash-based or, or specifically kind of the cons. But um, moving away maybe from the conversation around insurance and cash, what has been some of the supplemental forms of income We'll start with maybe that have not been successful at all. Like, have there been things that you've tried over the years where you're like, that's a waste of time? I mean, even just trying, like you mentioned, some of the bigger chains selling equipment, like, we're not super successful with that. And, um, like, foam rollers are what we sell, and we might sell 10 of them a year, right? Yeah. And we're not selling them to make a profit. We're selling them for the most part to just make it easier for a patient to leave with one instead of having to go on Amazon or go to Dick's Sporting Goods or something, yeah. right? Like pretty much what we sell them for covers the cost of shipping. Um, yeah. You know, um, even we've started offering, trying to offer some some supplements that promote healing, um, as well as some like topical creams. And we, you know, it's not a it's not a profit center. It's it's like how do we make this stuff more available? And maybe it's a shift in how we present these things. And um, I do as I'm getting more into stuff. I think. Um, the sales and the relationships probably take a higher, you know, they're starting to rank higher on my list than like actual skilled patient care, even though I, I would put any of us up against any clinician with that. But um, I think, you know, um, just the selling of the supplements and the topicals and the equipment hasn't been super profitable, but we'll continue to kind of make it available. Um, but what usually happens is we have it for a little bit and then I just start giving it to patients who I think might really yeah. benefit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, cause it's just, it's challenging because, you know, obviously we probably all agree that the most important thing for most patients is the patient care component, right? And it's probably exercise is probably, you know, education and is probably some manual techniques or, or whatever to help facilitate that process. And at the end of the day, like the supplements and the creams and all of that stuff, we as clinicians recognize that there might be some value in those things, but they are supplemental to what is the important stuff. Right. And so it's so easy to not even 
put a lot because to sell those things you do have to put you know emphasis on them mm-hmm. and to put emphasis on them can feel dishonest I think for a lot of clinicians which is why I think partly PTs have struggled selling things is because I think as a profession we're we're generally pretty morally upstanding individuals you know mm-hmm. we tend to want to do what's best for our patients in large part because we actually know our patients you know it's different from other healthcare providers who you know you see four out of five doctors recommend seven different toothpastes it's like how are these four out of five doctors, you yeah. know, this doesn't make any statistical sense, um, but it's because, you know, they don't know their patients. So it might be a little easier for them to make these recommendations or make these, you know, sales. But for us, we know our patients. We want what's best for them. And we, it's very easy for us most of the time to put a, a backseat on some of those things that would otherwise, you know, make us a little bit more money as a business. But we don't want to sell people on them all the time because we want them to focus on the foundational stuff that we always work on. Um, and so that's at least for me, what is a challenge with some of that stuff. And, and as I see it where, you know, I've been in other clinical rotations where like, Hey, try to start selling this, mm-hmm. try to gear. And I'm like, I, I just don't know if that's what I want the patient to be focused on. You know, I want the patient to focus on the things we talked about in terms of, pain and exercise and behavior change and, you know, load management and stressors and all this stuff. I don't want me to have to put a lot of emphasis on this band as being like the thing that they need so that the business can make a dollar 25 on the margin there. Yeah. I I don't know if that's the way to go. And I think people see through that really quickly. And and so I would be on the side of like, just do it right by the person and eventually the money comes instead of trying to make a quick buck on selling something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's why we don't. I mean, we have certain things that we try to push because we think it adds value or helps to con- continue the care, like our programming. Right. Like, we want to try to make that more of a part of our vernacular because everybody asks us what they should be doing when they're finished with PT, and we think that there's value in that. Of you know, maybe we monetize the patient a little bit more, um, but it's also providing value if they they follow it as they transition back to what they're normally doing. Right. Right. Um, but to just, if someone brings up supplements or someone brings up needing a piece of equipment, sure it's here available for you, but to just say everybody needs to take this, I, you know, even like a supplement, how can you prescribe the right thing if you don't have a blood test to really know they need supplementation? Right. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you know, that's where I think we lead into what for me is a very you know sensible or moral thing to sell and that's education which is where i think you know the programming obviously you know programming from a patient standpoint transitioning back to being able to be active and that, ultimately that is education right we're giving them you know a routine to follow some contact points with us but ultimately when you're providing someone with exercise guidance you're basically providing them education to some degree. Um, that is kind of a product, but ultimately it's education and guidance. And then on the side of the clinician, and that gets us to like the mentorship, education from the standpoint of helping clinicians bridge the gap between where they are and where you know we feel that we have some specialty 
training or education to offer them to bridge the gap between where they are and where we are or where they kind of want to be in this specialty is I think something that is very easy to sell because it is something that we do believe in and we actually recognize the value there. Um, And so I think that, you know, if, like we mentioned, you're trying to establish passive or supplementary income streams in a cash sense for your PT practice, education, I feel like, is an underrated thing to sell Mm -hmm. because when you look at even even when you look at the education system and how expensive it is i think that you can offer a cash service way way comparatively less expensive and of equal value to traditional formal education streams like you're not going to obviously be offering doctorates or offering anything else but offering a seminar or offering a 13 or 12 week course at a reasonable price that someone knows like this is going to be worth the price i think is something that's not hard to get people to buy into because you know they see the benefit there and they realize hmm this is like one one hundredth of what i paid for pt school Hmm. and i think that i'm going to learn almost more than i did in all of my schooling about sports pt when i take this course yeah you know i think that that that's something that people are willing to get on board with yeah, I mean, but obviously, Max, you've seen how much work we've all put into that between, what, four people and building it out and creating the content and then you know, the delivery system and all that. Like, that takes time, and you definitely have to have an entrepreneurial spirit, I think, a little bit to do that. Um, you know, especially if you're just – if you're a standard clinician that's seeing 60 to 70 patients a week to go home and try to build something out like that, like – it takes a special kind of person to kind of grind like that for a little bit. Um, but there's value in that. And, um, I th- but I, but I, I think we just, as a profession, you look at some other professions that are closely related to us and, and some of them are a little bit more entrepreneurial than we are. Like they're very, they're much better at having those other streams of income. Right. Um, PT as a profession, I feel like has gotten very siloed in their, they're stuck on, we're dictated by insurance, we're, we're not going to sell all these things, we're not going to think outside the box to create these other streams of income, um, where I just, I wish as a profession, we, we didn't, we weren't so much woe as me, and we found solutions to the problems instead of, you know, just, you know, I don't know, I, I just wish we were more solution oriented, I think, and, and put our, our future in our own hands versus just letting other people dictate our future, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if I was listening to this podcast right now as a student or as a, uh, you know, an undergrad or PT school student, I would listen to these conversations and I would get like kind of bummed out, you know, by the fact that it sounds like these two clinicians are talking about the profession in a way that makes it seem like it's not profitable or you're not going to get a return on your investment from a time or school, you know, money, financial standpoint. And the reality is like, this is exactly why I think that I'm so excited about the profession is because, you know, we have all of these problems that we see. We have solutions that need to be developed. We have opportunities to, you know, better serve our communities and 
the public and fellow clinicians from an education, from a patient care standpoint. And we just have to be the ones who are willing to solve those problems. And without the problems, like if, if the profession was perfectly fine, that would be kind of boring, honestly. Um, so I feel like, you know, for anyone out there who's listening, this is exactly why the profession should be exciting to you. And if you're in PT school and you're thinking, man, did I get like the return? Am I going to get the return on my investment here? You have the opportunity to really like revamp things. And I think that, like you said, if you put doing what's right by the patient and doing what's right by other clinicians and by the community and by your profession, I think that the money is going to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. That's just my spiel. But for one final kind of question for you, um, and then we'll kind of close this thing out. As a business owner, and now you've you know you've owned Precision solely independently for a, a little over a year now, right about right Just at a year. About a year yeah. um, what has been, and for context, you know this is 2021, which means the year that you've solely owned Precision in has been 2020, and I, I probably don't need to say more about that than that. But um, what has been like the biggest lesson that you've learned? in the last year as a sole business owner? Just be able to pivot fast. And I, and I think that's a luxury that we have because we're a small company versus some of the larger companies. Um, but like that week when in March, when nobody knew what was going on, we were a month and a half, we were six weeks into business. We shut down completely for two weeks, but it was like, all right, everybody's still on salary. This is what we're gonna do now. We've had these ideas to move forward. We're just gonna bang them out now. And um, so we, we shifted the focus. And um, I, again, that's a luxury we have because we're small, but be able to pivot quickly and make adjustments and try to try to innovate for growth of the profession moving forward. And, and I think seeing a lot of the young guys coming out like you and, and Nick and Nisha and Troy, like I think, and some of the others on social media, the profession's set for change, right? I think the next 10 years will be very telling. Um, but I think we can, we're, we're, real, we're perfectly set up to be the leaders of change in the healthcare system. You just have to maybe right now think outside the box and be willing to take a little bit of that risk. And not just, um, no, you can go cash, you can go insurance-based, you can have these other cash options or a hybrid model. You just have to be maybe a little bit of crea- a little creative. Um, and then it just comes down to doing right by the patient and, and showing them that you provide value. And I think there's a lot of people making a lot of money in the profession, right? There's also some people that are woe is me and they just kind of get stuck in the silo and, and they're comfortable making what they're gonna make. Um, so I, I think you don't have to be discouraged if you're a student I, and there's good things coming and just don't be afraid to pivot and innovate. And, and that's, I think, the biggest thing that I learned in 2020 is um, it's a, it, be a change maker and, um, you know, I don't know. 2020 yeah. was a, a good teacher, I think. It, it definitely forced... Mm-hmm. A lot of businesses and a lot of business, unfortunately, were just kind of like 
consequentially the you know the victims to some degree of 2020 um, when you look at things being shut down and not, not really having options in your hands kind of being tied behind your back but like you said for you you know it, it demonstrated maybe or highlighted in a profession that has been very much stuck in a specific way of practice you know the, the clinics who were probably more successful this year were the ones who a week later were able to have telehealth yeah. and a week later were able to completely revamp their policies, procedures regarding, you know, the clinic setup and all that stuff. So I think it definitely was a, you know, an encourager of innovation and pivoting. And I think you see that and we're lucky because we're essential. Like we can, we're, I'm so thankful that we're essential and we were able to keep working. But even some of the the gyms and restaurants that were so hit like you've you've seen in those industries the innovation that's happened mm-hmm. right which with restaurants like now utilizing even things like DoorDash like a lot of them were forced to go there and now that's a huge part of their business and then i just think when we get out of it when that when they bring their newly expanded DoorDash together with their in person like it should hopefully gr- fuel the growth of their business cuz you and I have, you know, are are now more in tune with understanding DoorDash and how that works, and so we might be more inclined to do that. And I just think the the companies that were able to innovate, the gyms that, you know, they filmed every Zoom session and then made it a membership site. So now they have their membership site for people that want to do things on the go. Plus, they have their in person stuff like that. That innovation is just going to fuel their growth when we come out of COVID. Yeah. Right. So it, when you can, when your your hands force a little bit, but you're willing to pivot, and then it all comes together, it's it could make for some really big things in all industries. Right. Yeah. Hopefully those things are coming this year um, for us and for everyone out there. Um, if anyone has any questions, please reach out to us. Otherwise, we appreciate you guys listening. Um, this will again be kind of the first part of uh, a few other episodes we're going to do in the business sphere with maybe people who do have a cash practice and want to give us their insight on some of the the discussion that we had today so we can kind of hear all different perspectives on that end Um, but again we hope everyone's doing well and we will talk to you guys in the next one thanks Max thank you for listening to the training room talk podcast We hope today's discussion was helpful in illuminating some of the complexities behind pain and rehab. If you don't know where to go from here, please reach out to us with questions. We have mentorship options for clinicians and students and programming options for you to elevate your own fitness. We look forward to speaking with you and again, hope you enjoyed today's discussion.